Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Business Boost. Business owners, please take confidence from this announcement. You now have some runway to catch your breath as you get restarted. So please, bring back your employees. The government extends the wage subsidy for three months for businesses, but how many will be eligible? And with the potential of a trillion dollar deficit, should the government release an urgent update on how much it spent on the COVID-19 crisis? And is the government doing enough to track who's getting the money? The Minister of Employment, Carla Qualtro, joins us with details. And then, spend or save? It's essential when you're when you're looking at a government that is spending almost 200 billion dollars in new spending. They provide Canadians with some kind of a plan, some kind of an update in terms of how we're going to reopen our economy, kickstart our economy, and manage the country's finances. The leader of the opposition criticizes the government for high deficits on one hand, but then demands that some aid programs get bigger. What do they really want? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer weighs in, and then open for business. Sort of. On Tuesday, May the 19th, we will enter the new stage, stage one, in the reopening of our province. Ontario announces plans to reopen big parts of its economy starting Tuesday, but how can it reopen safely and prevent a second wave of COVID-19? And what's the province doing to improve conditions in long-term care facilities? The Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips joins us. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Going forward, we need to make sure that this program keeps working for people. That it keeps encouraging, em encouraging employers to rehire staff and even expand where possible. So the government has extended the wage subsidy program for businesses for three months until August, and they promise to ease the eligibility requirements to make sure more business can apply. But how much will that cost the government that is facing more than a trillion dollars of debt? And with all these programs and spending, should the government urgently release a fiscal update on the total cost? We'll talk about all that and more. The Employment Minister, Carla Qualtro, joins us now. And I hope you and your family are doing well. Minister, thanks for being here. Let's just talk about the original wage subsidy program. Yeah. It was budgeted to be $71 billion. Okay, uh, and it was eligible businesses that had lost 30% of their wages or their salary will get it. Does this extension double it to 142 billion or more? I think that remains to be seen. Um, I know that the finance minister is going to spend some time in the next month working with the business community to figure out what changes could possibly uh, incentivize job creation, what changes could better position businesses as we come out of this crisis. Um, I would expect that as, the, as, you know, as we dig in more on this in the future, you know, there's going to be things that we can do as a government through regulation. There'll also be things that we're going to have to do to change the law um, that created the wage subsidy in the first bit. I, I can tell you that it's good news for businesses today that we're extending it. It gives them the certainty they need. Um, it also uh, provide some more flexibilities to the type of businesses that are going to be eligible for the wage subsidy. Okay, but if, if the eligibility is eventually increased, and I know there's, there's no details on that, the cost is going to go up because I assume the assumption is we're decreasing, we're making sure the eligibility is widened so more businesses apply. Has there been a problem with the take-up of this program? Because it's been slower, I think, than you expected. Yeah. I think that's probably the, the fairest analysis. It's been slower than expected. I think 
businesses are having to put a lot of time and effort into their applications because you have to dig into your pay payroll who earned what when. I know in, in my own writing as the MP for Delta, we've been working with businesses to help them put together the information they need to provide. So I think we're looking at the back end, how CRA can be more streamlined in taking in the data from businesses. And I think the uptake is going to pick up. Um, I, I don't think that there's a programmatic problem. I think it's more a, um, a challenge to provide the data to the government. If you've now extended the wage subsidy, can we now expect till August, will other programs like the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, will that be extended as well? I think it's a really important question and it's something that we're looking at. In my ideal world, we move as many workers as possible off the CERB, and then we figure out why people are on the CERB in the first place. Is it illness-related? Is it childcare-related? Is it job loss-related? Now that they've got their job loss, jobs back, pardon me. So I'm particularly interested in the next two weeks to see, um, as the numbers come out for the third wave of CERB applications, if they go down because right. 2 million employees have been transitioned to the wage subsidy, um, if as students, as sorry, as um, economies open up around the province and kids have things to do, maybe people go back to work. It's really going to depend on how the next two or three weeks play out, Evan. The opposition party is concerned about fraud on the CERB. Andrew Shear, who will join us in a minute, claims that 200,000 Canadians are defrauding the government and that your government is willfully ignoring it, that there was a memo sent saying, don't bother. Can you tell us how many have been red flagged and are you concerned about the fraud? First of all, of course, we're always concerned about fraud. And we want to make sure that we have robust integrity measures in place to minimize the fraud. We have about a 1% fraud rate with Government of Canada programs in the best of times, to put it that way. Um, but the memo, I think, that, the, that Andrew Shear is going to talk about was really operational direction to Service Canada employees on how to temporarily process EI claims in the new reality of the SERP. So you have to understand that Service Canada um, employees went from processing EI claims that are very front end heavy on integrity measures to processing, you know, automated um, claims through the CERB that really pushed the integrity measures to the back end. We're not ignoring anything. We're not turning a blind eye but to But what anything. does that mean? What is pushing integrity measures to the back end? The concern oh. is that with seven and a half, eight million people applying, yeah. by the time you get to the back end, it's just... They'll be, it'll be too complicated, and you're going to have to write off a bunch of fraud. That's their concern. Should you be doing more on the front end? Oh, absolutely not. First of all, our priority has been, from the beginning, getting money into the hands of Canadians. And if we'd have used the existing EI system to process 3 million, 4 million, now we're at 8 million claims, it would have taken 12 to 18 months, which, of course, doesn't really help out in a crisis. So I can assure you that... that we know what we're doing. We have a very sophisticated risk framework. Everything that needs to be flagged is being flagged. So, for example, um, things that are need to be urgently investigated. So, say, for example, somebody inputs a SIN number that's associated with a deceased person. That that CERB payment doesn't doesn't get made. It right. doesn't get made. But if somebody inputs a SIN number that's associated with an 80-year-old, that's going to be flagged. We're still going to make the payment, but we're going to look into that at some point and make sure that that 80-year-old was actually working, actually making the $5,000 in employment income last year. I, I, like, There's so many levels of this that it's not a matter of red flag, green flag. This conservatives are oversimplifying and, quite frankly, not trusting Canadians like, like I do. 
Well, I, I mean, I think there's trust and there's just regular safeguards yeah. that are just prudent. There are concerns about the spending total. Look, when you extend the, the wage subsidy, a $71 billion program, you're essentially doubling the length. We can only assume it's going to be double or more. Um, can you, at this point, as the employment minister, tell us exactly what's the rolling total? What's the number of how much your government has spent to cover the cost of COVID so far? Well, it's a good question. The last number I had, Evan, which is probably in the next last day or so, was around $150 billion, has gone out into the hands of Canadians. So when you, when you think of the number of months left in the CERB, months left in the extended wage subsidy, it's, it's significant. But I'm convinced and you know, that the more we invest now, the better we position workers and businesses to come out of this. And the long-term hit to the FISC will be less. Okay, so you got, you're saying $150 billion has gone out. The parliamentary yeah. budget watchdog says that the deficit will be $252 billion, but that's absolutely optimistic because it doesn't calculate even new announcements like happened on Friday. Uh, the, the debt he's talking about is a trillion dollars. All that said... When yeah. will there be a fiscal update? When will your government give us a fiscal update so we can actually get a track of where the, this money's going? So uh, I would say right now there isn't, we're, we're still in the crisis phase. I think there'll, become, there'll come a point where we could make a clearer economic projection, but today it would be too speculative to be worthwhile. We are, we're trying to be as transparent as we can as we make announcements, as we total up the, the various costs associated with our different measures. But I think we need to give the country time to get out of the crisis so that any projections we make could actually have some level of meaning and some but, level but of relevance. To, to be fair, I mean, this is like saying to someone who's speed going 170 kilometers, a cop pulls them over and they say, do you know how fast you're going? And the person says, sir, I'm going way too fast to check the speedometer. What's wrong with giving <laughs> us a rolling total? I don't know why that's so difficult. Well. I, Maybe I'm misunderstanding your question, but I'm, I tried to give you a rolling total. But an economic projection, as I understand it, is more a forecasting of the future of, of kind of the economy in our country. And so if you're talking about can we give you a tally of money spent to date and how much we project various measures, that's available. You know, I'm giving you my best total today. But if you're, I guess I was thinking more of uh, an you economic know, the update coming out. Yeah, an economic update is what a lot of people want. All right, I, I got to leave it there, Minister Qualter. I appreciate you coming in today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care, Evan. All right, coming up on our program, does the government need to do more to tackle fraudsters abusing the emergency response benefit? Or is Andrew Scheer kicking workers in, Canadian, in Canada when they're down? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer will join us with his take. Stay right here with Question Period. The situation is changing incredibly rapidly and a, a budget is usually something that projects what's going to happen in the Canadian economy for the next 12 months and right now we're having a, a, a lot of difficulty uh, establishing with any certainty what's going to happen in the next 12 weeks. So the federal deficit could reach as high as a trillion dollars according to the uh, parliamentary budget officer who will join us in a minute after all the spending on these badly needed COVID-19 relief programs. But should the Prime Minister release a budget or a fiscal update so Canadians know exactly how much money has been spent so far? And 
are people who don't need any financial help taking advantage of the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer joins us with some of his views on all this. Good to see you, sir, and I hope you and your family are doing well. You have repeatedly suggested that the Liberal government has failed to help Canadians, but there are over 7.5 million Canadians who are using the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, millions more using the wage subsidy. Uh, and by the way, the Prime Minister on Friday extended uh, the wage subsidy till August, and he says he's going to open up eligibility. So what are they missing? Well, they're letting so many Canadians down. It is true that there are millions of people who are accessing this benefit. Uh, Conservatives supported these types of emergency benefits that will see people through this crisis. Uh, but there are so many barriers to people being able to, to work or to receive uh, any number of, of the benefits that they've announced. For example, if, if you work for a store that is offering you some shifts and you earn $1 more than 1000 you lose the entire benefit. Uh, small business owners who don't have a business bank account aren't eligible for the loans. Uh, if they don't have a CRA payroll number, they can't access the wage subsidy. So we understand that back in March, many of these programs were designed quickly. What we're saying here is we're in the middle of May now. We've got to be removing some of these barriers to get help to people. So you want the programs to be more flexible so more people can uh, make money. What do you make of the fact that on Friday the Prime Minister said, look, we will explore uh, changing the eligibility criteria for the wage subsidy. It used to be, you know, you needed 30 uh, percent loss of wages. Now he says maybe that's too high a barrier. What do you say to that? Well, it's frustrating that it's taking this long, and, and people are going through these hardships in real time. Uh, for example, the rental subsidy, the, the, the rental benefit that they offered businesses, was only eligible if you've experienced a 70% decline in revenue. There are so many businesses that have adapted, that are uh, delivering products or doing store, store pickups, so they're still earning some revenue, and they're actually being told that they would be better off if they closed their doors entirely. We don't want these programs to have barriers to people finding finding a way to continue to provide so, good services and keep people employed. So we do want to see more flexibility built in. On one hand, you, your finance critic, are criticizing the government for spending too much, for building up the deficit. There's all this points about the trillion dollar debt. On the other hand, you're just telling me you want to expand the programs, make people more eligible. That will cost more money. So can you, are you going to pick a lane here? Do you want to spend less on the programs and fight the deficit or spend more on the programs and not worry so much about the deficit? I think there are two completely different things here. First of all, we have long warned this government that their massive deficits, while times were good, were leaving us in a very weakened position. Uh, we want the government to, to, to stop wasteful spending. We are highlighting their $50 million uh, to, to, to MasterCard, their millions of dollars to Loblaws for fridges. There was all kinds of wasteful spending going on uh, that left Canada more vulnerable during this pandemic. As it relates to helping people get through this, uh, we, we recognize that so many people are going through incredible hardship through no fault of their own. And we do believe that it's appropriate for government in a temporary, timely way to help with that. Uh, so that's why we've supported these programs with sunset clauses to make sure that uh, as things return back to normal, that these don't become permanent programs that are uh, that, that will have to be paid for uh, right. you know, but, but by the, I, that's fair they may not be permanent but you're, you're saying expand the criteria let more people go spend them make sure people don't get kicked off them and then you're hammering them on the deficit do you appreciate well, that you know the for, two, I mean the, it's hard to I mean, have one without I, the other no, I think we both know that there is normal spending that governments do on long-term basis, and then there is a, a reaction to a pandemic. And we are being very clear that as it relates to the government's normal fiscal process, they've been incredibly 
irresponsible. In addition, we're very critical of the fact that this government is sending out hundreds of thousands of checks to people who don't deserve this, uh, the CRB, who don't qualify for it. We're hearing reports from uh, people saying that that, that uh, the, the, this benefit might be going to people in prison. Uh, we're being told by public service they've been told to ignore red flags as it relates to fraudulent cases. So even as we're trying to get help okay. out the door to people through a pandemic, you still need to have some fiscal responsibility. Okay, but let me talk about that because you, you've quoted you've quoted this number two hundred thousand people who have defrauded. I've asked the government. I just had Carla Qualter on. They say they don't a have that number. They say they have red flag people. There was a memo that went out not to ignore the red flags, but to pursue them afterwards. So, so I'm just trying to figure this out. First of all, where did you get the two hundred thousand number? Because I can't confirm that with the government. And and they're saying, look, we'll catch these guys at the back end, but with almost. Uh, seven and a half million people who have received payment in the last eight weeks. Is Mr. Shear's suggestion, this is what they're asking, delay the payments to almost eight million people to protect what your number would be, 0.02% of potential fraudsters? Well, first of all, it's not surprising it's difficult to get a number out of the out of this government. This government is famous for not uh, being open and transparent. And what Justin Shearer is trying to do is, is present a false dichotomy. No one is suggesting that we delay getting help out to people who need it. But if you've got a directive going to public servants saying, don't pursue red flags, don't look at cases that, that are obviously probably fraudulent, uh, then that defies common sense. If it is in the order of 100000 or more, uh, you multiply that by $2,000 per month, you're very quickly getting into hundreds of millions of dollars. And if Justin Trudeau thinks that he's going to get that back from people who claimed it fraudulently, you know, I, I think he's being uh, naively optimistic there. Okay, but, but I, I appreciate that. I'm just trying to, I'm just, I looked into this. No one wants to condone fraud. The CRA says on any program they expect about 1% fraud. This would be about 0.02. I, I, I'm with you. It may go up if those are the average numbers. But, you know, you do have to get your SIN number. There is some front-end screening. Maybe it's not enough. Do you think there should be more front-end screening? Well, we just think that when you've got public servants saying that they are looking at, at cases and applications and there are red flags going off, that there are people who have, who have claimed, made fraudulent claims in the past applying for this, we just think that they should be allowed to pursue that. Uh, at the very least, the, 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 we don't believe that that will impact the ability for people who need it, who qualify for it from getting their benefits. And this is what this government has done from the get-go. They say, you know, any criticism of their plan and they and they try to conjure up images that people are, are opposed to helping people. We want these programs to be accessible. We want people to, who deserve them, who qualify for them to get the help they need. We just don't accept that it's impossible to do it properly. And that's what Mr. Trudeau would have you believe, that it's just impossible to design these programs with safeguards around them. And the same is true as it relates to fixing the gaps in their programs that are letting so many people down. We say that uh, the CERB is too rigid. It's, it's putting in barriers to people working. We say that the rental uh, program isn't expansive enough. We say that the wage subsidy isn't helping enough people uh, get on board. And they say, well, it was, it was too important to get the, the money out the door back in March. I say, okay, well, this is May now, Evan. I get it. But I mean, you got to admit, the numbers are massive, sir. I mean, they, they, you've got seven and a half million people have received the CERB. 13 and a half million applications, because you have to process them, have been processed. And over $35 billion is out the door in two months. So there is a fire hose of cash out, and that leads me to my next question. Do you think the government owes the Canadian people a fiscal update now? 
I believe that it's incumbent upon the government to put out some kind of an economic update. I understand, I think all Canadians understand that this pandemic has uh, certainly uh, changed the dynamic and, and upset any plans that may have uh, originally been uh, proposed. But I think before the House rises for the summer, before we, we you know, it basically will be three months, uh, two and a half months before Parliament resumes in September. We think showing Canadians what all has been spent so far with some kind of a plan, some kind of an economic update makes sense. Uh, two last things, uh, because you're coming to the end of your tenure. Um, will you be running as an MP in the next election? I, uh, I intend to run again. I, I, it's been a distinct honor to be the member of parliament for Regina Capel, and I hope to be able to earn their trust again in the next election. I, I, I love my riding in Saskatchewan, and I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, to spending more time there. Okay, you'll run again. And then can you just give us an update of something that was an election issue, your dual citizenship? Uh, have, you made, have you continued your steps to renounce your U.S. citizenship? Uh, after making the decision to, uh, to step down, uh, knowing that I won't be Prime Minister, I, uh, I discontinued that process. Oh, why did you discontinue it, out of interest? Well, just for personal reasons, Evan. You don't want to tell us why you discontinued it? When, I, did, when did you do that? Uh, I'd have to go back and check. All right, I've got to leave it there. Hey, uh, Mr. Shear, always good to have you on the program, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Uh, that's Andrew Scheer, leader of the official opposition. Coming up, too fast or too slow? Ontario unveils its plan to reopen its economy. How long will the road to recovery be? Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. I want to be clear that businesses should open only if they are ready. I'll repeat that, only if they are ready. So retail stores with street entrances and outdoor sports like golf can begin the long climb back up Mount Normal in Ontario, but it's a staggered climb. Like many other provinces, the economy there will relaunch in stages. More businesses will open as a part of phase one on Tuesday, but how long before the people of Canada can, I don't know, get a haircut, go out to eat? When will the kids go back to school? The Ontario Finance Minister, Rod Phillips, joins us now. I hope you and the family are well. Minister, great to have you on the program. How did your province, Ontario, determine what can reopen as part of this stage one that starts on Tuesday? Well, you know, Evan, um, going back to when we started to wind down the economy, we started to plan for what was going to be the more difficult part of what is quite hard, which was to wind it up again and, and to turn it back on. So you'll remember about three weeks ago, we laid out a framework. We wanted everybody to know that it was going to be health principles that were going to drive that availability of tests, availability of tracking, hospital capacity, making sure the cases were going down. Um, so that was part of the, the plan to make sure that we set out those criteria. The second was we've been learning throughout the whole essential service part of this, uh, of this crisis. So things like the LCBO that have been operating in large communities, small communities, big, small, shipping, uh, all the things that they do, what can be operated safely? So it was all of that information that fed into the analysis. Of course, the but timing was being driven by health, and then the two came together, and as, as we hope on Tuesday, we'll start to see that first phase of opening up. You know, and I get there's team too slow and team too fast. I, I appreciate the, the debate raging. But the truth is, if you look at things like testing, Ontario, I think only once has hit that 19,000 tests. Uh, we haven't hit the test. There's all sorts of testing and tracing capacities that we haven't hit. Actually, some cases have gone up a bit, not down. I'm just trying to figure out how we're making decisions because, to be candid, there's a fair bit of confusion out there. 
No, and, and listen, this is a this is not an easy task, but that's why we laid out the framework so that we could answer that exact question. So what we said was we wanted to see cases going down, particularly community cases, and the chief medical officer has said we've hit that threshold. Testing needed to increase, and now we have among the highest per capita testing in North America and the highest and also close to the highest actual testing in uh, in Canada. And the contact tracing, now we've been advocating for an app and some technology support, but we have literally thousands of people that have been brought in to support that kind of capacity. And so it was putting those benchmarks in place. Of course, we didn't know three weeks ago when we were going to be able to see those cases decline to the point where we were able to open, but we wanted to make sure we were prepared. We'd have those phase one businesses, as I said, learning as we go about what can be operated safely. And that's why, we're happy to say that Tuesday we'll start to see uh, that next step. But phase one businesses get to reopen, but do those businesses have an advantage over others? You saw in Alberta where Jason Kenney said, look, Calgary and Brooks, Alberta are going to be slower, and a lot of businesses there said that's totally unfair. We're suffering. We don't get a chance to recover as quickly. What do you say to businesses who say, hey, why do we have to wait and Joe down the street doesn't? You know, there is inherently unfairness in the fact that we have to place those public health priorities ahead of commercial priorities. One of the differences between ourselves and Alberta is we've decided to open up the province holistically as opposed to regionally. And there's a reason for that, again, behind it, a lot of thinking that went into it. Our experience and the experts that we talked to were concerned about what happened in places like New York and Italy, where people left the places where there were shutdowns and went to other locations. Right. So we've decided on a a different approach, and I guess history will judge whether that was the right approach. Uh, Minister, long-term health care homes have been a disaster in Ontario and in Quebec. Uh, when the military has to come in, it's a sign of, of failure. Uh, there are talk now that the federal government should either pull long-term care homes under the Canada uh, Health Act and give standards. There should be an independent inquiry, which we've had, by the way, for many other things with far fewer uh, more. Uh, deaths there. Would you like to see the federal government, A, increase health transfers with strings attached specifically for long-term care homes and an independent inquiry? So we've said that there absolutely needs to be a review, and I think we are in the middle of this crisis, and it absolutely is a tragedy what's happened internationally and, and in our own long-term care homes. So, so it will need to be addressed. The Canada health transfers uh, we've been advocating, and the Prime Minister has showed some interest in increasing those or including long-term care under those. Those tend not to be tied to anything specific, but we would certainly encourage the federal government to play a role in this important area. And there absolutely does need to be a proper you know, review that, that is done. Of course, right now, but I think review, everybody Jerry, I just want, is worth getting through this. Just let me clarify. Sorry. A review is a little different than an independent national or independent inquiry. Uh, an independent inquiry is different. There's no politics involved. Uh, given the fact that 82% of the deaths have been in long-term care homes, would you support an independent inquiry, not a review, an independent inquiry? You know, I'll go far enough having to say I think it's important that it be independent because we want to make sure we learn from this in terms of what's going to be done and what needs to be done. And we also need to make sure that it has enough scope. Uh, this has been something that has happened certainly in Canadian provinces but also elsewhere. Uh, so, and I, I think we will we will absolutely get to a time, and we've been clear that that we'll want to see that uh, that done. But I think right now people appreciate that what we want to focus on is, from a long-term care perspective, making sure we're making the interventions that we continue to make, right. whether it's the resources or otherwise, and then and then of course you know working to to get the economy back up and operating by uh, by opening our businesses again in a safe way. Uh, just real quick, so you're not opposed to the federal government having strings attached to a health transfer saying this amount of money has to be spent on long-term care. You have no problem with that? 
uh, if the string is it has to be spent on long-term care that, and, and they want to include that in the Canada Health Transfers, uh, we've been advocating for that. So I would be very much in favor of federal money to support our elderly and most vulnerable. All right, Minister, i got to leave it there. I really appreciate you coming in on the uh, Victoria Day long weekend. Thanks so much. Coming up on this program, debt danger point. With the debt set to climb past a trillion dollars, is there a red line? And as more money pours into aid programs, does the government owe it to Canadians to give a fiscal update on the total? The Scrum is next, and our special guest is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. You don't want to miss him. Stay right here with Question Period. continue to be open and transparent with Canadians as much as possible, but we will stay focused on helping people in the immediate as we move towards uh, a better future. The federal deficit could be as high as $1 trillion this year, according to the federal budget watchdog. And as the government spends billions and billions of dollars on much needed aid programs to try to keep the economy going through the COVID-19 pandemic, how high could the number reach? The spending is going up again as the wage subsidy program gets extended for three more months until August. Is there a deficit danger point? How long will an economic recovery take as the great reopening begins? Let's bring in the scrum to discuss all this. Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, joins us. Annie Bergeron-Oliver, reporter for CTV News, is here. Joyce Napier, CTV News, Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. And our special guest this round is the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself, Yves Giroux. Great to have all of you here on the Victoria Day weekend. Mr. Giroux, let me just start with you because you did confirm that the federal debt could hit as high as a trillion dollars. The deficit you once predicted to be 252 billion, it's probably gonna go up. Can you just put these massive numbers into some perspective for us? Is this all unprecedented stuff? Well, it's unprecedented in terms of absolute numbers, that's for sure, especially when we talk about the debt and the deficit, the levels. When we're talking about debt-to-GDP ratio, it's not unprecedented. If you remember in the mid-1990s, we had a, a debt that was not as high in absolute numbers, but the, the, the economy was also smaller. So we reached what was 66.6% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio in the mid-1990s. And if things are shaping up the way we anticipate them to be, we could be on par to, uh, to meet 48.4% debt-to-GDP ratio this current fiscal year. Uh, that's not worrying in and of itself, but that's a clear upward trend. Okay. With respect to, yeah, go ahead. What is the danger? Is there a danger point? Where, where does a red light start flashing for someone like you? Well, there's no clear, there's no clear midpoint or, or point where it becomes worrisome um, because it's a bit like walking into a very, very dark forest and you know there's a precipice, a cliff somewhere, but you don't know exactly how far it is. For some countries, it's very far away. Uh, for example, Japan is well over 200% when it comes to debt to GDP, and it's not a concern. Greece, uh, financial markets raise alarm bells way, way before they hit 200%. Hmm. So for Canada, we don't know exactly where the number is. But what is worrisome is that it's very easy, sorry, very easy to ramp up spending, to increase spending very quickly. That's not that difficult to do, to spend money. What's much more difficult is reining in spending and bringing that back to levels that are more acceptable. So it's very easy to increase spending, 
but on the way down it's much more difficult to to have the discipline and to say no to multiple stakeholders and that's what is worrying when we see deficit numbers that are that high bob fife as the as the unprecedented spending to use justin trudeau's favorite word keeps going is there a need urgently for some kind of fiscal update how important is that you know somebody at some point has got to say we've got to stop the spending and the Trudeau Liberals, right from the get-go, as soon as they form government, have been spending, spending, spending. And uh, as Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper said in a Wall Street uh, Journal article earlier this week, is that there has to be a sense in Ottawa that we have to turn off the taps at some point. So I think, Evan, we really have to think very, very carefully about how we are spending our money. Uh, Annie, I mean, there may be a need for a fiscal update, but people are worried about these numbers, but the debt-to-GDP ratio doesn't approach other countries. And when you ask any industry, anybody, the need is real. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to talk about shutting off the taps when we have record levels of unemployment. Well, how does the, the government balance that, the, the genuine need and the concern? Well, absolutely. I think that everybody recognizes that right now we are in a crisis and Canadians do need help. And the way to solve the problem is to continue spending and giving people the money. But we need to see the math. And I think that's where this push is coming from. What programs are potentially earmarked for not getting additional funding to be able to get this under control? There needs to be a fiscal update so that Canadians and the opposition parties know where we stand this moment. The government says we can't do a budget because they don't know what 12 months out will look like, let alone 12 weeks. But I think there's an understanding that this is an unprecedented, complicated situation, but people want to know right now the programs that have been earmarked, the programs that have been announced, what is that doing to our overall fiscal situation? I think that's where there is room for some type of fiscal update that can then be updated in six months or a year time. It's the math. Right. People want to know what calculations are being done behind the scenes and where we are now. Joyce, you know, one sign that the, the spending is not going to stop is on Friday, the government announced that it's going to extend the wage subsidy until August and, and you might assume that other programs will get extended that 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 may well be needed but it's going to be expensive what does that tell you well exactly that that it is still needed and it will be needed until August and perhaps beyond August the interesting thing about the extension of the wage subsidy is that so far $3.5 billion have been doled out out of a $70 billion uh, more or less program so what is happening out there? Is it that employers are not applying for it? Um, are people relying more on the CERB, which has not yet been extended and stops at the end of June? So, you know, that's why we need a fiscal update to find out, you know, what which of these programs seem to be uh, the most valuable programs for the Canadian economy once, you know, we get over this, once we are beyond this huge crisis you know, which ones of these programs will still be alive? Do we have an exit strategy? And why would the government not want to do exactly what the mm. parliamentary budget officer is doing and give us an update? It is, and the government should remember that, it is our money. It is taxpayers' money. So it's that governments right. become very secretive as they go. Um, and this government has been in power for five years. Well, it's time to be a little bit more transparent so that we know which ones of these programs are actually doing what they should do. Um, and, and Evan, can I just interject for a second? Um, when we wrote earlier this week that um, finance officials said there would be an economic update, fiscal update, uh, we got pushback from the finance department. And we said, right. well, wait a minute here. Uh, 
look, guys, you said it at a Senate committee. We're not making this up. So there looks like there's actually some debate going within government whether they want to be upfront with Canadians about the spending and what these projections mean to, Canadi to Canadians as a whole. Just, Mr. Giroux, last word to you real quick. What are your big concerns now as you're tracking the amount of spending, the number of programs, hard to keep track of. What are your big concerns and big questions right now? Uh, my big concerns are how are we going to get out of this fiscal situation? It's very well understood across the country that we need a response. We needed a, a federal government response to help Canadians and businesses uh, bridge through the crisis. But once we get on the other end of that huge uh, precipice, we will be... Uh, COVID-19 will be behind us, but what is the government's plan once we are uh, be, once the, the crisis is behind us? We have no idea because the government keeps making announcements uh, on a daily basis almost, as we saw throughout last week, and there doesn't seem to be an overall plan. And, but I'm sure that public servants have the capacity to, to uh, support the government in releasing a fiscal update because as uh, uh, senior finance officials indicated last week at the Senate committee, they are working on that. Having been in the public service myself, I know for a fact it's a certainty they are working on an update, but the government is deciding not to provide any update to Canadians, which is disappointing because it suggests that they may not have a plan. They are probably just uh, going as as things evolve on a daily basis, and that is worrying me. That is worrying. All right, let me take a short break. Mr. Drew, your, your uh, presence today, very much welcome. We really listen carefully to what you say. Thank you so much. The rest of the uh, Scrum is going to stay with us as we move forward. Soft diplomacy or suck-up diplomacy on China. Should Canada toughen up its stance on China or work more closely with it? The Scrum is back with special guest former BC NDP MP Nathan Cullen. We'll talk about that and fraud. Stay right here with Question Period. So China's handling of the COVID-19 crisis has alienated its allies, weakened its position as a global power. That is according to Dominic Barton. Who's he? He's Canada's ambassador to China. And he made these comments during a speech to foreign affairs stakeholders last week. The remarks, though, are raising questions about whether Canada is retreating from its once soft diplomatic approach to China. Some even called it a suck-up approach. Should Canada join a growing group of nations like Australia in calling for an independent investigation into the WHO and China's handling of the COVID-19 crisis? And will the ambassador's comments come with diplomatic consequences, especially with two Canadians? We should never forget the two Michaels still in detention. The Scrum is back. Bob Fife is back. So is Andy Bergeron Oliver. So is Joyce Napier. And our special guest for this round is the former NDP MP uh, in British Columbia, Nathan Cullen. Good to see you again, Mr. Cullen. Uh, what do you think? I mean, Canada's practice soft diplomacy. Some call it suck-up diplomacy. Should, should Canada toughen up its stance on China right now? Well, I, I, the question is, has our soft diplomacy worked? Have we had more engagement? Have we had more openness from China? This uh, entire pandemic has really tested that theory. If you are softer, if you're more gentle with China, less critical, does that allow them or encourage them to be more open, not just to Canada, but the world? And I think people are asking, and even now the prime minister is asking some important and tough questions, because China does not appear to be open to the world and transparent not just about what happened in Wuhan and that 
travel was banned within China from that province, but yet travel continued to happen outside of Wuhan to other countries. And could it have saved billions and billions of dollars and perhaps many, many lives if China had been more open to the world and more transparent about the challenges they were facing and the challenges that we were all going to face? So I think the Prime Minister's main theory of dealing with China is being tested right now. And it is interesting to me that he has taken steps towards slightly being a little more inquisitive as to how this all happened. And do we need an investigation into right. what happened in China and what do we need to do about it for the next pandemic and the next global crisis? Uh, Bob, there's been an international amnesty report that said Chinese government is harassing critics in Canada. What are Canada's options? Should they and did Dominic Barton kind of signal a recalibration of our stance? He gave it a, a bit of one, and I think we have to be very careful about this, Evan. Uh, the polls show that the a vast majority of Canadians are very, very distrustful of, of China, and the Liberals are calculating that into their China strategy. But from the get-go, this government has always been soft on China. They have been pro-trade with China. And so I think what you're seeing is a bit of a softening, but I think it's largely because of those polls from Canadians, because they're calculating there's going to be an election probably in the spring, maybe in the fall, uh, that they're in a majority minority government situation and they are they want to capitalize on the pandemic. So I think they under I think these calculations are about China is are for electoral purposes, because I do not believe that this liberal government has shown any inclination that they're going to get tough on China. Joyce, I mean, it's interesting. Could they do Magnitsky rule sanctions against people? I mean, what are the options that might signal a change? Uh, and, and what would be the strategic benefit of that? You know, it's clear that the Chinese withheld information, gave false or wrong information to the WHO, who in exchange gave wrong information to the rest of the world. Uh, could we have saved lives? Probably yes. I mean, none of us is a scientist, but probably yes. And in all the times that he was asked about China, the prime minister, in his daily uh, press conference, not once did he mention the two Michaels. Let me mention them for him, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. These are two Canadians that are in China, in prison in China as political hostages for all intents and purposes. And the prime minister has, has never tried to couch that uh, seeing how China is losing uh, the goodwill of the world and is, is, is the, what the ambassador called a soft power, well, then why doesn't the prime minister at least bring these two men to the forefront again and mention them at least? Right. So what else can he do? I don't know what political tools the prime minister has against two huge superpowers, but he certainly has the power to mention two men who are unjustly... Mm -hmm. Um, imprisoned in China. It's interesting, uh, Annie, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, he added his name to the mix, saying there needs to be a, quote, reckoning. But he also says one of the things we should do is reshore, onshore, stop letting China manufacture so many things, not only emergency supplies like PPE, but other things. And then all of a sudden you get at, is this not just a reckoning for China, but are we getting away from globalization, a retreat mm. from what I thought Jason Kenney mm. and a lot of conservatives fought for for a quarter century? 
Well, it's obviously a delicate dance for Trudeau and the government, considering the fact that they have admitted we didn't have the PPE that was required at the beginning of this. And right now we are extremely dependent on China. They're sending plane loads of equipment and necessary medical supplies that are keeping our frontline workers as safe as possible. So if we were to just cut off China, where would we get all those other supplies from? That is the problem that we're facing right now. The government has tried to amp up domestic supply. Lots of companies have volunteered to help, but we have seen some problems like that one rapid test is now being pulled off the market. So we obviously don't have enough domestic supply. Yes, that is a solution. We should be increasing our domestic supply and we're doing that, but we can't do it at the same rapid rate that China can. So to cut them off completely would put our healthcare workers but, at risk. But the That's question is not the question is with, not but he cutting can be much off. tougher. So he can be much tougher in his stance. He can join the calls from other allies that have already said they need investigations. Why we have not done that, why we have not asked more public questions questions about China and their handling is a question that Mr. Trudeau needs to really answer to. Uh, Nathan Cullen, just real quick, is your political compass flipping around as you see people like Jason Kennedy talking about onshoring or is it actually prudent because if you can't trust China to send us proper medical equipment, we should have our own secure supply? I think it's fair to say, and Bob mentioned this, that the Conservatives have always been much more wary of China than the Liberals have. Uh, I would also say it seems strange for a province like Alberta, who needs to diversify, that Mr. Kennedy's solution is actually to embed itself closer and deeper with the United States. Doesn't necessarily make a lot of economic sense, but I think it does speak to a Conservative base that is wary of this, this country, who, to be fair, hoarded those PPEs, those protective equipment supplies, when they knew there was a problem, a significant problem, didn't really tell the rest of the world this was coming. So are they a reliable source for something so vital as protective equipment for our healthcare workers and our general population? All right, I got 10 seconds. Bob, I just want to quickly go to you. Uh, fraud. The uh, Conservatives allege there's 200,000 cases of fraud in the CERB. Uh, the government says we don't have that number yet. I know you've been investigating this. Are we to expect a huge number and should the government be more concerned about that? Look, you and I have been around Ottawa a long time, Evan. We know when you have these kind of massive programs where billions of dollars are being thrown out the door, that there is going to be a lot of cases of fraud. We will all get to that at some point. And in fairness to the Prime Minister, his point was we probably are going to get that, but right now we have to help people. But let's not be under any illusion. There is going to be a lot of cases of fraud, and we are all going to find that out at some point. We won't find out from the finance department. We'll find out from the Auditor General and hopefully from the Parliamentary Budget Officer and maybe from you and me if we, if we keep digging. All right, well, keep digging is the mantra. I, I got to leave it there, guys, so we can get back to some digging. Maybe it's Victoria Day weekend, a little gardening. Nathan Cullen, Joyce Napier, and Annie Bergeron, Oliver Bob Five. great to have all of you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Happy Victoria Day to everyone. It's a different kind of long weekend. Stay safe, stay patient. As Bob said, do some digging in your gardens. We'll be back on Tuesday for Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel, and we will be back here on Question Period in seven short days. Take good care.